<laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. Thank you so much, Mike, for starting us up without any warning. Uh, sure, we're so. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> we're so happy to be back, and we're also excited to have Chadi here with us. Welcome, Hi. welcome, welcome, welcome. From what I've been told, she's an avid fan of the show and she has watched every single episode. But besides that, we're very excited to have her on the show with us. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. That's where we post some clips. You can get updates there. And also, don't forget to follow our podcast on Spotify and on iTunes. That's where you can share our uh, episodes in audio version only, which might make it a little bit easier to listen on the go. So, guys, uh, a lot has been happening this week, and, you know, we usually do a check-in. I, I really want to know, Chadi, you know, uh, what's going on with you? You're new here. We're glad to have you. Please give us an update. Hi. I am visiting Logan right now in California, and um, I'm not really an expert on anything. I just am <laughs> <laughs> uh, a friend, and um, I'm really happy to be here. Hi, everybody. That's perfect. Yeah. Hello, greetings, greetings. If if you are uh, watching with us right now, please say hello in the comments. Tell us where you're watching from, and also tell us a little bit about how your week has been too. We're so glad that you're here, um, Adrian. I understand that you have been enjoying COVID a lot. You've been enjoying staying in the house, going on walks. Okay. You know, I wasn't sure where that was going. <laughs> Me either. Me either. Uh, I'm, I'm really like, we have to understand when I'm hosting this show, I have no idea what I'm doing 100% of the time. So, so Adrian and Esther, how have you guys been? I wonder, I feel like it's it's always tricky asking that question because it doesn't seem like anything really changes since we're all at home, yeah. but happy to hear how you guys are doing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no major update. In the house, board, board in the house. Remote learning continues. Excellent. Uh, uh, Esther, is there an alien greeting? Um, I, I, I do understand that. Uh, your power, uh, Esther's PowerPoint, she uh, asked her kids to, you know, greet as if they were greeting an alien for the first time. Esther, do you yeah, have an alien will. greeting for us? No? I will. I will. Okay, that wasn't the question. The question was, you're an alien from another planet. Okay. How do they say hello on your planet? It turns out that was like not a good thing to do day one because everybody was super shy. Like everybody was just saying hello. Like they were like on my phone, they say hi. And I was like, this did not work out. But I had one student, he has been going to school in Jamaica for like, I don't know how long. He he lived in DC. He went to DCPS, something happened. And mom was like, okay, I'm taking you to, you're gonna go to school in Jamaica. So that's where he was. And then she brought him back when COVID hit. I guess she didn't. Uh, I guess she wanted him nearby. So he's been in school in Jamaica for a long time. And so his his alien greeting was Wagwan. Wagwan. <laughs> he was like, on my planet, that's what we say. And I'm pretty sure nobody else in the class actually got it. Like, no, everybody else was just like, he's speaking gibberish. Like, I don't even know. But I affirmed him. I was like, I know exactly. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> what it means? And it was very cute. It was very cute. 
That's beautiful. And honestly, I think that's inclusion. And then speaking of inclusion, uh, we have uh, Mike Nixon here, who is the VP of Diversity and Inclusion. <laughs> and Mike, I have to say, I love the T-shirt. Yeah. Please tell us, like, how, how do we get that? How did you come upon it? Uh, hello, Jordan. <laughs> uh, thank you for the intro. <laughs> um, yeah, so this shirt, uh, they did a, it's the 100th anniversary of the beginning of at least the more famous iteration of the Negro Leagues. And so uh, to commemorate that, they released a um, sort of a limited edition of some, you know, some shirts and some hats and things of that nature. Um, I got connected to it through, um, you know, being a Yankee fan, CC Sabathia is one of like the main persons behind the initiative. And so, um, yeah, jumped on it. Growing up, my dad would talk to me about the Negro Leagues a lot. Uh, when I was younger, it was kind of like, okay, dad, cool. Can we turn on baseball? Like just watch a regular game. But he was really intentional about talking to me about, you know, Josh Gibson, Satchel Page. Um, and and maybe and many others, of course, you know, stars like Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays that we found out about once they made it into the major leagues or were allowed, excuse me, to be into the, in the major leagues. Um, several persons before them who were just aged out at that time when the color barrier was broken, but were amazing athletes in their own right. And so, yeah, um, it's been a cool. It's been cool to kind of touch back into some of those stories my dad used to share with me and have some more conversations with him about that. You're on mute, but you know, continue. Do Technology. Mike, I do want to ask you real quick. Um, you did speak at the Unity Rally at Benton Harbor. Tell us just a little bit about what you talked about and how that event went. Yeah, so um, I was I was fortunate to be invited and, and shout out to Larry and Sandy. I see them in the comments. They were there. It was good to see them again. And one of the things that they said was just how much they love the show and all of us. And actually, um, even you, Logan, they even love you. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're just, you know, just, of course, huge supporters. And, you know, so it was really good to see them. Um, but it was an event put together. Uh, by the gentleman, a gentleman by the name of Trenton Bowens. Um, he's coordinated a lot of different events in the Benton Harbor area over the past few months. And uh, we kind of connected via social media and he just reached out to me on Facebook and said, hey, would you be willing to share at this rally? And that was really kind of all he gave me. And so I was like, oh, okay. And he expressed a lot of faith in me because I mean, I hadn't spoken at any of those events or anything like that. And so, um, Part of it was in commemoration of the March on Washington, which was the day before um, 57 years, you know, commemoration in D.C., uh, which would have been great to have gone to. But with the pandemic and everything, we're trying to limit travel. Uh, but um, so it was cool to be able to just share some thoughts and, and thinking about that moment um, was able to talk a little bit about voting as well, which, of course, is really important right now. And um, it was pretty well received, which I was encouraged by. And it was good to get some of that energy out because it's been, you know, a crappy couple weeks, couple months, that kind of a thing. So it was cool to be able to get some of that off my chest for sure.
Thank you. And then speaking of voting, Garrison Simone, dying to know how has impact democracy been going? It's been going well. It's been going well. We've been like just pushing it to our friends, keeping people engaged. I mean, that's really the goal is like, you know, voter accountability partnership. That's what we're doing. Um, but we had a great opportunity to to like do some mini kind of meta advertising uh, this past weekend. We got masked up and went out to the March on Washington here in D.C., which was huge. It was about voting. Everyone's like talking about voting and Simone wore our impact democracy t-shirt, which was really cool. And people kind of like looking at it, saw a couple people taking a picture of it, which was really cool. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Simone, where can we get one of these shirts? Facts. Yeah, we about to, the the drop the drop is about to be exclusive. Okay, it's super exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Garrison is the one who gave me my shirt. We got to we got to be married. Yeah, <laughs> that's a tall order. <laughs> but you got to post on Instagram like eight times. Seat is literally taken, so I guess that's. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. So, guys, and actually, oh, before I go, uh, Logan, we also love you and we want to know how you're doing too. Oh, yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing well. Chadi came from Philly to visit me. Just, you know, a couple of sad friends wandering around San Francisco. So that's been chill. Um, uh, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been good trying to find a job somewhere, but I'm not really looking. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> um. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh lord help us yeah, so guys oh, 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 sorry so i'm glad that we're all doing well and unfortunately we were hit by some very tragic news this week um i would say acclaimed actor an actor that has inspired so many people chadwick boseman uh, passed away this week from colon cancer and um, we just want to honor him by just talking about and really touching on how he has inspired us um, and, you know, what his legacy means to us. And it means that I would say even black people on screen. So I'll just say real quick, I feel like Chadwick Boseman just inspired me so much by how he has done so much in such a short amount of time. I would say that the, I believe you passed away at 42, 43, was it? 43, thank you. He passed away at 43, and I, I think a lot of us would say that is a very young age. And I think it's so amazing how he was able to portray so many iconic characters. And I remember reading an article saying that he brought humanity to these people, to these icons that a lot of people have failed to do in their portrayals of other famous individuals. So he was able to do so much while also fighting cancer. I think that's the ultimate sacrifice because he also understood that inspiring people is what true legacy is. And he wanted to make sure that is what he accomplished before he moved on. So guys, uh, and I do, I want to start with Simone. Uh, how has Chadwick, you know, it could be your reaction to it, how he's inspired you. Just please tell us what, what are your thoughts on, on what happened this past week? Well, I was incredibly sad. Um, Chadwick Boseman is one of my favorite actors. And I think also, 
you know, and I kind of tweeted about this, but there was a lot of meaning for me personally in his acting um, because he appeared in Black Panther and in Marshall while I was in law school. And I was just kind of counting, you know, I, I remember that moment having like a bolsa, like, um, you know, viewing special screening for it and all that stuff and how much it impacted us and just really provided us kind of like that visual of what it looks like to be a black advocate in, in tumultuous times. Um, and so that was really inspiring. And then, you know, also going on to like recognize my privilege of like having gone to undergrad during the Obama presidency and then being on the verge of seeing Kamala become the next VP. Um, it just really couched, like, you know, Chadwick Boseman was right in the middle there and he really provided so much um, to, yeah, just like being able to see it, you know, being able to see black excellence on the screen and, and inspiring um, so much of my career even. Thank you for sharing. I can't help but think, Mike, I feel like you do have something that's on your, that's on the tip of your tongue that maybe you'd like to share if you'd like to go next. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I have, a, I definitely, had, I had a couple of reactions and I'll start with one that's similar to what Simone shared, you know, being an attorney as well, um, seeing Chadwick, um, uh, portray Thurgood Marshall and Marshall was particularly powerful for me. It reminded me of, of course, my law school experience was a little bit before the movie. I actually had the privilege of taking a class called Legacy of Thurgood Marshall. And so being able to be reminded of some of those um, really impactful things that I learned about him and his um, his legal journey uh, was really powerful at a time when I really needed to be reminded of, you know, why I got into the profession. And so uh, that was huge. Um, also, of course, having just talked about the Negro Leagues, uh, I thought about, you know, the movie 42 and him portraying Jackie Robinson. Um, and then, of course, um, and then I brought my, my mask with me that y'all have seen. Shout out to Mr. Moore, who's amazing and who made that mask for me. Um, you know, it's actually, it's weird. It's kind of like, I don't know. I kind of like, I don't really like bringing it out that much anymore, to be honest with you, because it's just like something that I was really excited to wear. And I still am from time to time, but it's just kind of now it's like, man, it's a reminder of the fact that, you know, he's gone so suddenly and, and, and so soon. Um, it's weird, man. It's like one of the first thoughts I had was um, the end of Infinity War when like you see the Black Panther disintegrate on the screen and how I mean, you know, I'm not as much of the comic book head as you also like I didn't know that that was coming like at that moment. And it was just like, wait, did they just like eliminate this dude from the Marvel Universe? Are they serious? Like it really. And of course, that's like purely entertainment. That's totally to the side. But it's just like, I don't know, it, it just really, it hit home. And I, I thought about, you know, 2018, us all going to see the movie, us bringing like, it was like a hundred of us in there, if not more. And it was just like, it was such a, man, it was such a moment. It was such a event to be able to just come together. And um, I don't know, for me, it was like, 
that again for me was one of the moments you know kind of still being at the beginning of my journey here at andrews where i just kind of took a couple moments to just sort of look around and take it in and yeah like it's just a movie right so you don't want to get like too dramatic about it but at the same time it was definitely more than that for us and for me it was like it was one of the moments for me where it was like man i i really feel like i'm where i'm supposed to be you know, like to to be able to have this kind of a moment um, at Andrews, you know, for me, it was like I would have never expected to go to the movies with over 100 of us dressed up to see a movie just about like a black super black superheroes, black empowerment. Um, it was just like I really just felt at home, you know, for one of the first times being in this position. And so it definitely was pretty deeply meaningful for me. And so um, I don't know, I, I'll i be transparent. And I text a couple of you all about this. I mean, I had some um, I had some dark thoughts, I think, like right in the wake of it. It was just kind of because it was just it just feels like we're just getting hit by so many different things. And so one of the things that you know came to my mind um, which I pushed back on pretty quickly, but I want to be honest and say it's something that came to my mind. It was like, you know, you know, if God was black or if Jesus was black, then maybe he didn't like himself that much. Cause it's like, you're, when you look from up there and obviously he's God with us, but um, it's just like, when you see all of the different things that are happening and all of the different things that it feels like are being taken away from us um, as black people, um, it's just hard to stomach it like thing after thing after thing. And obviously, you know, I'm not one of Chadwick Boseman's family members or things of that nature. And so it's much more of a thing for those pe persons, obviously. Um, we're talking about a Hollywood actor, of course, but, um, you know, he was very intentional about helping us to, um, to see ourselves and to see what we could be in multiple different arenas. Um, and he did it with a, a class and a dignity and a humility that was deeply inspiring. And so, um, yeah, man, rest in peace to him for sure. And it's just a reminder to, you know, cherish what you have, cherish who you have while they're here, give them their flowers while they're here. Um, Cause you just never really know, you know? And I mean, I know that we know that, but it's just another, reminder of that. So um, you just got to seize every moment and every day as much as you can, for sure. And I have to say, to be honest, I'm, I think I'm one of the things that made me, I guess, feel hopeful, especially in the black community, is that I'm glad that we were able to give Chadwick Boseman his flowers while we were while he was here, because I think the response people had from Black Panther was beautiful it was powerful i mean just like what you're saying mike we like uh, us folks at Andrews, we sold out i think two whole theaters two whole areas yeah and two theaters full two crazy. theaters full so i'm so glad that he was able to see that the black community loved what he did and he was able to see what it meant to us and um i'm i'm, I'm happy we were able to give him his flowers while he was here does anyone have any thoughts that they would like to share yeah, 
I'll say that, you know, I, so I, as you guys know, I studied film production in, in undergrad. And so my goal was always to be a filmmaker and guys taking me on a different journey so far, but it's always been like in the back of my mind that I'm going to make movies. And like, I've always wanted to make movies that were impactful and, and, and powerful. And, you know, I think that like the internet and like the times that we're living in, we see so many young people doing so many amazing things, so young, that it's really kind of low key discouraging if you're anything like me, where you're like, oh, I have this this clock in the back of my mind running at all times and I've got to do stuff, you know? And, you know, as I've been reflecting on Chadwick's life, like I learned about him, he'd been doing some things here and there, but I learned about him, um, from the movie 42, which ironically was filmed in Chattanooga, which is like where I went to school. I have several friends who were in 42 and like, I felt this weird connection as a huge baseball fan growing up and the Jackie Robinson story. So I, I felt this connection to the film. And when I watched it, it felt so much bigger than just a movie. It felt really significant and and then he went on to make more and more films that felt like like projects that were more than just a movie. And, you know, they were so significant and so much bigger. Um, and and he did that, you know, 42. He made that when he was 36 years old. And like for me, like seeing someone hit the scene, his first lead role at 36 it just felt so significant and it felt like, you know, it's a reminder that you're not out of time. You can do the things that you want to do. You know, a lot of people are sharing how he lived his life on purpose. And, and I love that, but I'm just really blown away by how he was able to live his life on purpose in such a short amount of time, being on the forefront, being at the front of the scene, you know, and he made this, the, the last film that I've seen by him, and I, I think it may have been his last project, I haven't looked into it, but the one that I've seen most recently was the one that came out on Netflix um, by Spike Lee, The Five Bloods. And it was an amazing film for a lot of different reasons, um, but it really, I, I shared with some friends that it felt like it was healing this generational wound. It's about Vietnam and having uncles, um, especially who came back broken from Vietnam. And that brokenness has um, scarred, you know, parts of my family to this very day. Watching a film about Black men healing some of those wounds and finding closure, um, it was, I didn't know I needed to see that. I didn't know I needed that project. And again, just like, you know, up until the very end, his work was so significant and so powerful and so much bigger than a movie. And uh, I'm forever grateful to him, not just for Black Panther and 42 and Get On Up, and but but just for the way he lived his life um, at 36. You know, like I mean, it's just it's just really amazing. Yeah, I um, I had a couple of thoughts. I I was really sad. Like I. I think I was more sad than I expected to be. Um, and for long, like I felt that way for longer than I expected. And I think for me, a lot of it does have to do with the movie Black Panther. Um, just because of like, 
I mean, I've been a fan of superheroes and the superhero films for a long time. And like, just what that, what that film meant to us as a community, as you guys have touched on and that, um, like just how, I, I just love watching black people celebrate. And I love when we have chances to celebrate together like that. And I think Black Panther was just such an awesome display of that, like all over the country, all over the world. Um, like it was like red carpet events everywhere for black people. I just, I just thought I, black joy to me is just amazing. And I'm so glad that he got to um, like be the face of that for us. Um, I think there's also a couple other things that came to mind. One is just like um, intentionality. Like for a, a black actor in Hollywood, there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of barriers that would force a person to have to make less intentional decisions with the roles and the stories that they chose to take on and embody. And we see that a lot. Like there's very limited spaces for black actors to tell such meaningful stories about black people and blackness. And I think it really says a lot that he chose the stories he wanted to tell so intentionally. And I I don't know much about his story at, at all, honestly, but I wonder if maybe that is, maybe that intentionality is part of why it was like 36 when we started to see him like breaking out and like on in all these places, because I can't imagine that it would be easy if you're trying to be an actor in Hollywood to make it with, while trying to make such intentional decisions. Um, and I think it just, it, I think it's a message to me and to all of us that like in whatever path or purpose you choose, like this, this, I think we all carry the burden of like, I think we all carry the burden of being very intentional about, um, I'm trying to find the right words, but I'm, I think we all carry the burden of being intentional about whatever way that we can. Um, like our life should be, our life should be about tackling oppression. Like I, I think everybody's life in some way, shape or form should be about that. And I think that he just really embodied like making such intentional choices. Like I, all those stories that he chose to tell, like, I just, I really, really appreciate that he chose to do that. I also think um, I had the same thought as Nick's kind of, of like, why does this keep, like, why does this keep happening to us? Like this year, especially, but also just like always, I feel like black people are like, we have, we lose icons like every year. It feels like this year has been especially difficult. Um, because there's all these other layers happening, but it feels like it happens to us so often. Um, and I feel like as I've thought about it more, I'm like, I don't know if it's happening to us more often or if it's just that we are such a communal group of people. Like we, because of our collective experience, we feel such a deep connection to each other, to black people that we don't know. Like. Like when I see black people make it, when I see black celebrities and black successful people, it feels like a piece of me is on that journey with them because there's just this innate connection because of our collective experience. And so when we lose somebody, a famous person that, you know, most of us have never met before, 
um, it still feels like a real grieving process for all of us collectively. And I kind of found myself feeling like, wow, that can be very painful. I also feel very lucky and blessed to be a part of a community that's like that, a community that is so like collectively intertwined and connected with each other that like we celebrate for and with each other and we grieve for and with each other. And I think it also makes things like this that, you know, to other people, I think sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like, why are you so upset about this person? You didn't know them, you know? But black people get it. And it's, it is helpful in the healing and grieving process also to have that community that's all going through this together. Um, and yeah, I just think like just seeing everybody's reactions online and talking to other people about it just highlighted that, like how lucky am I to be a part of this community that like we feel everything for each other so, so deeply. And we go through all of these things together, no matter how, like the great, the good things and like the really horrible and difficult and painful things. Yeah, I think it, just to kind of piggyback off of what Esther was saying, <clears throat> I love what Ava, she tweeted this. Um, it was like a picture of like five or six like famous black actors. Like she was in it, Samuel Jackson, Chadwick Boseman, um, Tiffany Haddish, like a couple of other people. And she was really trying to make the point that like, there aren't that many household black celebrity names in Hollywood right now, right? And so when we lose one, like we're gonna feel it so much more because there there just isn't that many, right? When when you only have like seven or eight household black names and then one is just kind of abruptly ripped away while they're in their prime, like it it feels like so much more weight is something that we all kind of collectively have to like have to have to carry. And I mean, you know, we, we see that not just in film, but like <clears throat> we see it in, in politics when we, we lost Lewis, like we're gonna feel that heavier because we, it's not like we have other people there um, where we can say, yeah, we, we lost him, but we've got like so many. It, it, it's always such a small number. And I think that's what made it hurt even more. Um, you know, when, when we when we talk about losing him playing T'Challa, as as progressive as Marvel was, that movie stands out more. His character stands out more because it's the only one we had, right? Out of the 23 films that Marvel made over the last 15 years, that was the only one that we could say was like this this was ours, you know. And then when, when we lose such a such a crucial piece, and when we lose someone who, who you can see they were putting such an inten intentional effort into like integrating him into being like such a crucial character in the MCU storyline, like it just hurts even more because it it felt so abrupt for someone that is like irreplaceable, you know? And I think that's what's kind of made it hard where like even when now when you still think about it, it's like it, it doesn't seem real, like very similar to when Kobe Bryant passed. It's just like it, it doesn't seem real right now. Like you have to keep reminding yourself that this person's gone and we don't even know them. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's why 
you know, like not only do we feel it when someone is successful, I feel like it's our responsibility to to affirm them, whether it's celebrities, movie stars, politicians, because like there aren't that many. And as we've seen, like sometimes we lose them in an instant. And I feel like we just have to make sure that we're able to show them how much they meant to us um, while they're here. Um, I think for me, going off of that, I think of just how important representation is like on the screen. Because I remember uh, Black Panther is a movie that I saw three times with three different groups of people. Like um, my father, an uh, undocumented Black man living in America, waited for me to come home from spring break so that he could take all of us together as a family to go watch this film mm -hmm. because it was just so important to him as a 48 year old man to see somebody that looked like him on the screen, even though he doesn't, my father doesn't really speak English. It was still so important for him to do that. And I think about now on uh, John Boyega, who was in the Star Wars films mm -hmm. and how he is facing still so much criticism from people because he he was a black character in the latest Star Wars films. And that just gets me so angry. And I'm like, what am I doing? How can I do more to support these people who are who get, who has who have given us so much and they're still facing so much hurt for playing, for just for just existing and being black and being somebody, a fictional character on the screen. And it just is so important to me as a person who does film and loves documentaries and still and makes them. I'm like, and I just think about their impact and what 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 do I need to do to make sure that I represent these people as well? How can I, as a storyteller, also do this? And that's how I can I see him and how it's affected me. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to piggyback, continued on the the representation conversation. I mean, I'm really grateful to Chadwick because he did bring us Black Panther. I was in Missouri at the time, and I, I remember driving to Berrien. That's like one of my my favorite memories. You know, coming for a good weekend during Black History Month to watch a movie with a lot of people who I uh, saw that were very excited. Um, and you know, Esther talked about. Um, black joy and how she loves that so much but like we don't get to see that unless we see representation in hollywood and and not tokenism and not just doing it because it meets uh maybe an agenda but actually saying like these parts and these stories can be and should be told because black people were a part of them um and black people need to experience this same you know i've never had a connection to a to an actor or a character like that because it's always been so normal for me to connect with what's on screen. But that's the one thing that I continue to see with Black Panther with, you know, when he played Little Richard or Thorogood or um, Jackie Robinson, like these characters, they they connected with people, especially in, in the black and marginalized communities in different ways than we're seeing it connect with, you know, for me, white people. And for, and for me, it's just to say, I want black joy to continue to happen. And the only way we see that is when we use uh, Hollywood to represent that and to actually uh, tell the stories, the stories that history teachers and politicians and, and you know schools and institutions have chosen not to ever tell. Hollywood can say, you know what, I can tell it. If, if I'm going to be the one um, educating, I'll educate this way. 
And, you know, I just continue to say thank you to Chadwick because he, he gave us some really good stories and some really good memories and, you know, black joy that we couldn't have experienced without him. Also, I'd like to say that I think a lesson that can be learned is like, we need to keep showing up. We need to keep telling people, this is what we want. This is what we demand. Um, we're going to support these things. They are important to us. We're going to take up space because we deserve to, we deserve it. So very grateful for his impact and legacy. Mike, did you want to share something real quick before we move yes. on? Yeah, um, and thank you all for what you all shared. One thing, well, two quick things. One thing kind of hit me as you all were sharing. Another reason why I, it was pretty significant um, for me personally is actually that weekend when we all went to see Black Panther, um, it was actually uh, the one year anniversary of It Is Time that weekend. And it gave me the opportunity um, as the person who was brought on for the position that was created after uh, Garrison and Esther and others publicly protested systemic racism at our institution, it gave me the opportunity to hand deliver letters to them, thanking them for what they did and for um, really changing the uh, the history of our, the trajectory of our institution for sure. Not because of anything that, you know, I think I'm gonna do, but I think, you know, just them stepping out in the way that they did in that moment, things shifted. And so, um, yeah, that was, I just, that just came back to me. That was another just really um, powerful opportunity that I think we all had to share with each other that weekend and just a reminder um, of just a lot of what we saw and what was shown in that film of, you know, black excellence, black empowerment, and um, how when we do step into our agency, we make room for for other black people to do the same. And so um, that was one thing that came to me. And then secondly, I just wanted to quickly mention, um, you know, a quick RIP to coach John Thompson, who just passed away a couple days after Chadwick. Um, one of the reasons why I think it's important to mention him is just, um, again, just talking about folks who were trailblazers, um, he was the first African-American coach to win an NCAA championship, which um, is a, a major significant accomplishment knowing anything about how racist the NCAA is. Uh, and to do that at a school like Georgetown, which you know, years after that finally started to grapple with its connections to slavery and, and how um, money from slavery helped set them up to be the institution that they are now. Coach Thompson was one of the behind the scenes influencers to hold them accountable. Um, and so he was an amazing coach, obviously, but even better than that, a great mentor to so many young black men over the years. Um, I think, of course, of Patrick Ewing being a Knicks fan, one of the um, images that stick out in my mind um, was when in 94, Patrick Ewing finally made it to the NBA finals, which was really significant for us. And I was sitting there watching it with my dad and we were like, you know, high five and hugging each other and whatnot. 
And the first thing that Patrick Ewing did after, you know, this really powerful moment for him in his career was to walk into the stands and find John Thompson, who was there, and just give him a big hug and just thank him for all he did for him. And, and that's who Coach Thompson was because, I mean, Ewing had played for him in like the early 80s, you know what I mean? So this is years after. He didn't have to show up to support him for that game, but that's just the kind of person that he was. And so it's a reminder to me of how important it is to to give back and to be there for um, those who you accomplish things with because he didn't forget about the fact that he was able to win a national championship with Patrick, but their relationship was bigger than that. And so – a uh, huge RIP to him. Um, I know lots of folks are affected by that, particularly in the sports world. And uh, yeah, just wanted to mention that real quick. It's probably impossible to follow that um, because huge RIP to him. He what a giant. I mean, and and a way maker for so many people coming after um, after him. Um, I will say one thing that. I think is I think is important to mention in this conversation that has been weighing on me, especially in the midst of COVID, has been um, not just black mental health, but black physical health and how we're caring for our bodies. And, and you know, we don't have any of the answers as to, you know, when Chadwick was screened for cancer or, you know, any of that type of thing, but he got it well below the age for screening. And, you know, obviously it was at stage three. So we're not sure when he first got it. And um, as we're watching this pandemic um, unfurl on our society and our community and the people we love and care about, and, and it's just the poster child for systemic racism in the healthcare, um, we have to, you know, prioritize our own health and, and, you know, like recognize that, like, that's important for us to champion and to take up and to, you know, prioritize and to ask for those screenings and to, you know, make that a cause that we're passionate about um, and, and advocating for. And I mean, obviously, the fact that he was, you know, like fighting his own fight, but he was also encouraging children who had cancer and visiting them and, and being the Black Panther to them is such a powerful testament to Chadwick's personal strength. You know, like that is is so powerful. Um, on a more exciting note or jo joyful note, he does have, which some of you guys may know, but um, he does have a movie that will be coming out later this year um, which is going to be about um, Ma Rainey and it's called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And so it's going to be on Netflix. And so, you know, we do have one more Chadwick work to look forward to. So um, I'm sure he will make us so proud and, and, you know, once again, champion a cause that, you know, we're all so proud of. Thank you everyone for sharing. Um, I think it was really powerful for us to just be able to, honor someone that inspired us and honor someone that was a part of our, our wider black community and black family. So moving to the next topic for tonight, we're going to be talking about <clears throat> COVID <laughs> and we're going to be talking about how COVID affects so have many. You, have you been tested? 
recently. Yeah, you know, just, I'm great. You know, I, I, I had dairy for dinner. Okay, I'm fine. Masks on, everyone. We're going to be talking about COVID here. And we're going to talk about how COVID is affecting things like education, healthcare, talking about the, the death toll, the economy, and even how COVID is driving the current election. Essentially, what Trump's plan is and what Biden's plan is in regards to tackling the pandemic. So before we start, I do want to go over some stats. Uh, Mike, can you throw up that link I sent you on the screen for us, please? And while Mike's doing that, there is a CDC tracker that was able to give us some really, I would say, accurate data. So since September 2nd, uh, which is, of course, is today at 1216, there have been 6 million total cases here in the U.S., Unfortunately, 184,000 deaths and almost 200 cases per 100 people. So the total cases are on the rise right now. And Mike, if you could uh, scroll down for us real quick, you can see the map. And as you can see, especially on this uh, on, on the east side coast of the country, and of course, it's because it's more condensed, we have a lot of color around it and it's pretty mixed. And just to kind of help us understand this map, the, the really, of course, the really dark red spots are the places where there are more cases, where things are increasing. So we can definitely see where Mike is pointing in Tennessee in the South. Unfortunately, we are seeing some more activity of people getting more infections. And then even towards the East Coast, where we can maybe see in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, things are a little bit lighter, um, but there are some darker spots. I think that's in, in North Carolina and also even going down to Florida. Uh, it seems like cases are picking up. I do know for Maryland, we are going to be moving to the third stage of lockdown, which is essentially going to be letting enter entertainment uh, businesses open up to the public, of course, with um, adequate social distancing measures. So that's just a quick overview of what's been going on. So guys, I'm really curious to know, you know, how, uh, what do you think, or how do you think our country's response to COVID has been so far? If you give us that super quick and where do you think it's going? Well, uh, I guess I can go. W one of the frightening things that I have noticed um, is just like how politicized we've kind of allowed this virus to become. Um, and I think this can be seen no greater than um, at the RNC that, that took place. I know like Esther and I were watching that episode of John Oliver where he, he went at them that entire segment and he played this clip of a speaker at the rnc and it it was bizarre how he spent so much of his rhetoric using past tense language you know like the, the this this once in a lifetime virus came the president handled it and people lost their jobs. Like it, he, he's phrasing it as, as if this is like something that we we are no longer dealing with. It's something that is in the past, something that is no longer currently affecting millions of lives. Like 
businesses are still unable to open. Schools are still having to shut down. Like my grandmother told me that a college in Rochester uh, wanted to be in person, but then the virus was spreading so quickly that they had to shut it down. Like, so this, this idea that you, you see this language that I see a lot of people, particularly on the Republican side of the political spectrum use that past tense language is, is so dangerous. And I think what is starting to make it more frustrating is that that language is starting to be believed by their their supporters, their voters. They they, they were already holding on to a string in believing that COVID existed or that the tests were were being you know like the the amounts of tests is correlated to the amount of cases or that. Um, the amount of deaths is being overflated. Like the the number of conspiracy theories using bleach, hydroxychloroquine, like it is just through the roof. But it, what we are starting to see now, when we see these Republicans using that past tense language, it, it's almost as if they want people to just forget that this thing is happening. Go on without your lives. Have no care in the world. Mask is not that big of a deal. And it, it's, it is dangerous to see that being used as your political weapon. It, it, it is almost ungodly and immoral for you to use that as your political weapon when you know that what is the point of you gaining so much political power when you are going to have hundreds of thousands of lives of people dying. And, and I guess that that is something that I, I'm going to always hold over the Republican Party and having family members who have gotten sick from this virus. I, it's just unforgivable. Quite, I, There's no other way for me to, to phrase it. It's just unforgivable. Yeah, I think what's disappointing about that is it's working. Uh, that's probably... I mean, you can look at the polls. This this Trump moving towards no masks is not a big deal. Open back up. Like we can sit here and say that it's ridiculous, mm -hmm. but it's clearly like working. And and you know, I think the fact that we have a Joe Biden versus Donald Trump scenario, it's it's proven by the reality that a lot of people believe these people in, you know positions of authority when you're running for president, when you're you, you are the president, and so. That's probably what I found most frustrating about this conversation is that we are letting people believe it. And I don't really know how to combat that. And maybe I'll have uh, like better ideas. But that's probably what I found most frustrating is that a report came out this week from I believe it was the CDC saying like 94 percent of deaths um, to COVID were from uh, other from other things like um, they had pre-existing conditions, which is literally how everyone pretty much dies. You get sick. Like if you're um, have a weakened immune system and you get an, an illness or a virus, you're going to have a really hard time getting through that. That's why so many elderly people pass away in wintertime during flu season and with pneumonia, things like that. But the, the, the right has used this as like some like, yeah, see, it doesn't actually kill people. Other things kill people. And it's like, uh, I don't know. Trump has like pretty much used this as a way to say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Literally, a White House spokesperson came out and said, uh, we need herd immunity. And so, oh, keep going, keep going. The uh, herd immunity, like, is what they want in our um, 
in our society, like the White House is saying, we can get together and we can have a 2,000 person gathering because we're all going to get it eventually. And it's like, yeah, but my grandparents can't get it. Like they'll, they'll not make it. That's the problem. That's the reason we're trying to. But so many people are like, ah, your grandparents will die anyway. So, you know, if this takes them, they just have pre existing conditions and they should have ate more vegetables. And that's just like honestly ridiculous to me. And terribly disappointing and i don't even know what to do about it but yeah yeah sorry thanks uh i think what's frustrating to me is yes them talking about it like oh this is all over and it's it's done with but also just even if it was over today or tomorrow and whenever it is actually if it is ever over honestly is where i'm at um I just feel like there's not enough recognition of how long lasting the impact and damages done from this virus are going to be in multiple facets of life. Like I'm just thinking from my sense as an educator, I mean, yes, you have schools going remote. You have people trying everything that they can to bridge all the gaps that we possibly can, one-to-one -one technology, hotspots for families who need Wi-Fi, like all of these efforts are happening and they are, they're helpful and they are definitely impacting um, like the quality of education that we're able to give to families and to children while we can't all be in school in person. But the one thing that I keep hearing and that I keep saying from all educators that I know is like we meet we need to be able to go back to school at some point soon because even where we're at now i just i don't think that there's enough i don't think that people realize like a generation of like this is an, an entire generation of people and in some areas of course where people are going to be more impacted than in others but this is a generation of people who are losing a crucial year in their education Right, like I don't. There is, there's. I when I was in grad school, there was this stat where they were like, if you have one bad year, like you have one bad year in elementary school, whether your education is just ineffective, it's inconsistent. Say you have like a teacher who's gone, and then they have to bring in, um, like just like subs for the rest of the year. Like you have one bad year of education. It takes three years of exceptional teach, like exceptional wow. teaching, for you to catch up. Wow. Like not for you to excel, for you to catch up. Like one, like that's the impact of one year of just one year of just not like you. You're not getting the the level of education that you need to stay on track because everything is so cumulative. And so I'm just thinking about all of these, all students, but especially elementary kids students. Like, and yes, social emotional learning is a whole other thing. But if we're just focusing on even just academics strictly. I mean, there are so many things, like so many practices that are actually necessary for students to get like, to get all the information that they need that we simply cannot do online. Like I'm thinking about, um, if you're thinking about just like reading, right, which is a crucial skill, like you, you don't wanna have an illiterate country. Like having an illiterate country has impacts on everything else, right? Employment, obviously like college graduation rates, um, how much money you make, like it impacts the economy, it impacts everything else. 
so much of learning how to read has nothing to do with reading text. It's all about listening and hearing sounds. Like that's the basics of, of, of literacy is you learn how to hear sounds first. We can't give that instruction effectively on Zoom. Yeah. So if you're in kindergarten, if you're in first grade, even second grade, what I teach, crucial years for learning how to read, learning the basics of literacy. Here it's called phonemic aware awareness, hearing letter sounds. We can't give that instruction effectively online. Inevitably, children will fall behind. That's an entire generation of kids now that are behind in their literacy education. Yeah. I like I and the longer that it takes for us to get back into schools, the bigger the gap gets and the harder it's going to be to fill. We already have we already have a gap from just three. We were out of school for three months, y'all. Children lost a year of their math learning in three months. And I can't remember the I can't remember the stat for literacy. But I mean, just like I don't think people understand how urgent it is for the future of our country. All right, nobody move. Okay. <laughs> hey. Yes, you are at the future of our country. Oh, um, yeah, the future of our country is really dependent on how quickly we can get back into schools. I, I, I really think that it is that it's that serious. Um, and I, the fact, the the longer it takes, the worse it gets because the bigger the gap gets, and the harder it is, and more impossible it becomes to to close that gap and it's even worse obviously in low-income communities and in black communities um that don't that parents don't have those extra resources where they can get a tutor and they yeah. can do all of these extra things so um like even like even as we are right now we're going to be feeling this for a long time but the longer it takes for us to get back to normal the worse we're going to be feeling it and the longer we're going to be feeling it for and that's just academics. That's not even talking about the social emotional impacts of not having interaction with your peers for an entire school year. So it's important. Yeah, I really hope that we're able to cut that clip out of what you just said, Esther, and like post it everywhere because that's really, really important. I feel like we have really given up on solving this. Like, I think we've resorted to like, okay, like kind of what, you know, I think Logan was saying earlier, everybody's gonna get it. So eventually you'll get it. But the science has already told us that you only have immunity for about two to three months. Like you only have it for a certain, like for a finite amount of time. And then you can be reinfected. And if you're reinfected, then you can give it to someone and then that person can get, and so it can be around for a really, really long time, um, which is really dangerous. And like you're saying, like, we have to solve this. We have to fix it and, and conclude this chapter for the future, for like our future generations, for our children. Yeah. And I think one of my main reflections in this time is that we have really lost our concept of we in this part of the world. Like it's really obviously individualization and all that stuff, like we individualism and all that. We talk about that and, and disparage it. And I think rightfully so. But I don't think we've ever encountered a time 
where it was more important for us to understand the value of we than the moment that we're living in right now. And what you're talking about, Esther, is exactly why. I mean, we have an entire generation and people are throwing our planet away due to climate change. We are completely giving up on future minded jobs by like, you know, investing in coal. And now you have this pandemic as kind of like the culmination of this broken ideology of me first and I'm going to make it. But we really can't make it without each other. And, and so I'm really, as it's already been said, I'm really discouraged when I hear the president act as though this is an inevitability when we really actually have to be proactive in order to solve this very real present and future problem. Yeah. So guys, I saw Curtis's question. I think it would actually be a really good one to ask and get your thoughts on. Uh, Curtis says, there are some positives though. We're identifying more cracks in the system. Everybody, which he then clarifies is a particular subset of Americans voting against their own interests, thought Andrew Yang was crazy until everyone lost their jobs. And he's speaking of Andrew Yang's um, $1,000 a month for every American. Everybody thought private healthcare was better at handling national crises. So guys, what are your thoughts on this? Do you really think that there are positives to what's happening right now? So if, if I could just respond to that, because th this was something that kind of affected Esther and I pretty personally. So um, at the end of March, beginning of April, um, my job, I was furloughed from my job because of COVID. Um, the university that I was working for, they had to make I guess like terrible decisions. Like there's there's no there's no right or wrong decision. They they just had to make calls here for the the survival of the university, right? And in the midst of kind of losing my job, uh, as you all know, it was in the process of Esther and I moving, in the process of us getting married, um, and. The, the the anxiety that that we were feeling and I know for a fact that I was feeling was just through the roof right not just with funds right because I we had savings right we we had parents family members who could hold us down but it's little things like for for about a month we were not going to have health care and um like that's terrifying, right? Like Esther has asthma, right? Like that that's something that we can't just like ignore, right? And it I don't think people realized when those when when the stimulus check came in and uh, you know, when they fought to have that additional six hundred with the unemployment checks, I, I don't think people realize how crucial those funds were to like our survival like not not just with like paying bills but like moving expenses to coming here or surviving for about a month before a you know steady income was coming in so that we weren't just accumulating a bunch of debt you know in the meantime and you know, we, we had a lot of people like like to talk about just, you know, we're like milking the system. 
or you heard rhetoric of like people being lazy. Um, but like, as Curtis is saying, having those funds, it, it, it exposes a lot of the talking points that you hear a lot of people use, right? Like when you have this worst case scenario that people on the left have been talking about, like Barack Obama said it, the one thing that keeps him up at night is a pandemic, because that is something that you just can't, you you cannot plan for it to just come so that you can have everything in set. When you have an administration that doesn't take it seriously. And that's what we saw, right? It This pandemic just destroyed the talking points that I saw from so many people. When you have this virus that's taking away jobs, that's taking away healthcare, that's taking away st financial stability, you need the government to step in and provide that assistance, that help to keep people afloat, right? And so when you try to use that, that language of like less government interference in our lives, well, what do you expect people to do? What, what, how do you expect people to live? How do you expect people to survive when there are no other answers? How do you expect people to pay their rent when you've got landlords that are not being as empathetic as they could be in this moment and they're giving them evacuation notices? Who is going to be the one to step in and help these people survive? And I think this exposes how ludicrous it is to attach healthcare to an employment to employment because when your employment's gone, it is not that easy to just go get another job. It, it, and it's a fallacy to think that you'll just get something just like that. And I think what what I would really hope, what I would have hoped in in this moment is for people's empathy to grow on how difficult it is uh, to to live a comfortable life because if if you if a pandemic can't show that then like I truly don't know what would. Yeah, thank. First of all, thank you for sharing all that, Adrian. I really appreciate you sharing it. Um, I I, I want to just on the healthcare point. I mean, I just want to say pretty quickly. Um, can we just like honestly, fundamentally for a moment, just say like the only people who like the healthcare situation in America are health insurance companies. Like they have to be the only ones, like none of us, like, I mean, it's all terrible. Like I've, I've had a couple jobs and like, I've had some jobs that haven't had health coverage and then I've had a couple that do. And it's just like, you're paying this this big old premium, which it's like for what? They don't pay for anything. You know what I mean? Like they don't really cover anything, bro. It's just like the whole it's a scam. Like, and everybody knows it. And so I I just hate, I don't even I don't I don't even understand what the argument is. Like I really don't. Like, so first of all, all of the Republican um congresspersons who are trumping and all this crap about, you know, keep the government out of our lives and we don't want government run health care. Them and their families all have government run health care. They all, that's, they, so what are we talking about? All you people, all these millions of people across the country that are parroting these talking points that they're feeding you because in actuality, the majority of them are, 
you know, securing for themselves this cushy retirement job in the healthcare industry or with one of these companies that's going to give them some huge salary because they've been carrying their water in Congress. Um, you're, what are you getting out of that? Like, I don't understand what people are getting out of it other than a terrible healthcare system. Um, I mean, there's so many books out there about it. The book that really opened my eyes to this was a book called Deadly Spin. It's by a guy who was formerly working with the health insurance companies. And he literally was taught. I mean, you've heard the, the phrase death panels. He was he literally explains in detail in that book how they would come together and make these decisions that they knew for a fact would lead to people dying. And, and it was literally they would just and they're, and they're sitting there trying to figure out how can we not pay for this life saving surgery? And, and this is supported by pro-life Republicans. So like all of this stuff is just like, it's ludicrous, bro. Like, I just don't understand what, what the, what the conversation is even about. Donald Trump's healthcare plan for the past four years has been destroy Obamacare. That's been it. He hasn't, he hasn't given us one sentence on what he would do to replace it. It doesn't matter what he would do to replace it. It's just we want to degrade and kill what the black guy who was here before tried to do. And if if people die because of it, we will defund, you know, you know, uh, the the the, um, the professionals who could help us get through a pandemic. Who cares? It's all Obama's fault. He's literally he's literally taking pictures of what's happening across the country right now and calling it Biden's America. Like what are like what are we doing, bro? Like I how is it the person who's trying to become president's fault? Like it's not even like so like blaming it on Obama got old, right? Now we're blaming it on the person who wants to be president who has not been in a position to to decide anything. Like, what are we doing, people? Like, what's happening, bro? How can nothing be his fault, but everything that he he creates out of thin air that's good is because of him? I don't understand how that works, bro. I, I just don't get it. And uh, nothing makes sense anymore. Vote for Biden, please. Is what's so funny and frustrating about those points you're talking about, Nixon, is that, like, he literally tried – with the House and a Senate to get rid of Obamacare. And they were like, bring us an option, like give us a plan. And he was like, we just want to get rid of this. And they're like, no, nah, we can't just get rid of a the ACA. Like it exists. And they're like, no, nah, just get rid of it. And even the Senate Republicans were like, no, buddy, like you have to have a plan. And it's so funny because Trump supporters will put these lists of accomplishments that have not been accomplishments of Donald Trump. They've been things that the House and Senate have put through and Trump has just signed the pen on and people are like, look at what he's done. Like, I love the, the HBCU one where he, he provided, you know, funding for HBCUs. And it was like that was literally the day after he said HBCUs were racist and he wants to get rid of funding for them. And everyone was like, wait, no, uh, we the HBCUs aren't racist. That's stupid. And he was like, oh, OK, well, let's fund them then. And, it, and it's just like. Wait, this is the the Trump plan is to attack, and then if he messes up, he'll he'll swing back the other direction, and then be like, "See, look!" And he tried to do it. He's even gone on record to say, as of two weeks ago, like, "Let's wear masks." 
He put a mask on on TV and everyone was like, maybe finally we'll get a guy that's willing to handle this pandemic. And But we have it. We still don't. And every that's the thing is somebody literally asked me on Facebook this week, like, what's a policy that Joe Biden supports that you makes you want to support Joe Biden? And I, I listed all these things. You can go on my Facebook page. It's under my one about um, there that he's lying to you. And, and I was like, and no one would even give me a policy of Donald Trump's that they supported, like not even a policy that he supported other than the fact that he didn't support some of these policies. And someone literally, one of my family members said to me, like, you're in a uh, group think, uh, what do they call it? A think tank or think tank, or it's a group thought narrative where you're being deceived with false narratives under the, under the status on my Facebook that was literally Trump is lying to you about Democrats over and over. I'm like, you're literally telling me that I'm in a false narrative under a status that's telling you that your president is driving a false narrative over. Like you can't even make it up. That's the thing about Trump is it's not even that I don't like his plans. It's that he doesn't have plans and no one is willing to look at it. It's literally insane because the guy doesn't have plans. And it's, I just get so frustrated because I don't like Joe Biden. I didn't ever want Joe Biden, but at least he's got a plan to do something. At least he wants a minimum wage. At least he wants green energy. At least he wants to stop uh, immigration deportations for a hundred days while he revisits. At least he wants to keep DACA. Like he, he has plans for these things. Unlike Trump who has literally no plan for anything. And the Republicans even said it at the RNC. We don't have a plan. We're just going to talk about Trump. And we're going to have six of the speakers be Trump's family. I'm sorry. It's just like literally insane that that he still might win an election. With It's like me. I don't even have a plan for my own life. Make me president. It doesn't make any sense. It's insane. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh. Uh, Amen. You know, I'm just I'm just going to say I agree. Thank you so much, Logan. Uh, Chadi, give him a hug if you can. Esther, go ahead. I, I just wanted to say he has no plans, except we really need to be paying attention to all of these reporters and experts who have been going overseas and have been studying fascist governments and dictatorships and authoritarianism and how they're all telling us that we are quite literally on the brink of that and that this election is the deciding factor, essentially. I don't know, I'm not an expert, I don't have a bunch to say, but I saw a thread on Twitter the other day from somebody who was, and they essentially said, this, everybody's talking about this election, like if we lose this one, we'll have a chance again in four years to like get the candidate that we really wanted this time around. And all the experts are telling us, no, we will not. If we lose this election, we will never have a chance again. And it's not going to look, nobody believes it because we all think it looks like it's going to be some dramatic shift. But everybody's saying, no, that's actually not how these things work. What it looks like is, sure, we'll have an election in four years and another one four years after that. But we'll all know that what we do and vote for doesn't matter because the entire system has been gutted from the inside. So um, that's just another, he has no plans except for that one. Like that is a plan that he has and we should be paying attention to that. Yeah, and I like I like how, you know, when Bernie Sanders was asked, he said like Trump, Trump is not an idiot, but but like he is crazy. Like we 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 try to like put this narrative out there 
that like Trump, he he his his intelligence level is is at the ground zero. He has no idea what he's doing. He's a complete buffoon, like idiotic. But what like what Esther's saying, you we we had we saw something take place during the 2016 presidential election where Trump started to create a very like dystopian echo chamber where people were only listening to him. His word was truth. He isolated news networks so that when they did try to prevent, uh, present accurate information, their legitimacy is just thwarted from everybody's mind. And now you, you see it escalate even more, right? When you look at the language that people were using at the RNC, they're not saying that the Republican Party is going to help the country. They're saying Trump <laughs> is going to save the country. Like that, that that is a clear linguistic difference that we like. We have to make sure we're catching when we're trying to critique this party because they're not they're not talking about somebody like Rubio. They're they're not they're not talking about somebody like Mitch McConnell. Like th those people are there. What they're talking about is a singular savior who they are placing all of their fealty to, right? And that, we, we have to recognize that kind of language is so dangerous because you see it happen throughout the last four years. No one is going to speak out against them in these rooms, right? And then people resign or they quit or someone gets fired. And then Trump replaces them with someone who they know is going to be loyal to him. And the more people you kind of see him build into these key positions, for example, the postmaster general had no experience in post office, postal service, none at all. All he was was a Stark Trump supporter and he donated a bunch of money. And they knew that right after uh, studies were coming out that people were considering doing mail-in ballots, all of a sudden, you see the post office start to get defunded. They're gutting funds. People are are starting to see their their mailboxes being taken away. So so many intentional efforts happening, and I'm like, well, are, how are you all not recognizing these strategic moves that's happening right in front of you, right? And and it 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 is so like what Nixon said earlier when he's like showing clips talking about like this will be Joe Biden's America if you, if you vote for him even though like we're we're literally in Trump's America like that that is a tactic that you see happen everywhere uh, obstruction of justice they try to say Obama was going to do that Trump did it when you you talk about uh, meddling in an election people swore that Obama was going to do something in 2016. Trump's doing it right now. Every talking point that you are seeing people use to accuse any left-leaning politician is happening right now within the Republican Party. And, and I, it is scary of the cognitive dissonance that I'm seeing from people who are just not able to pick up on that. So. I, I gotta say too, real quick, cause I. I know Mike has some heat for us. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna just really, you know, uh, set, set everybody up real quick. But it's, I think Americans really, I mean, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, I think Americans really need to recognize that 
party loyalty is just the worst thing that you can have right now. I think we need to start looking at facts and we need to start saying, even though I rock with this person more than the other, are they advocating for things that I really feel like are going to help me and the people around me? And I feel like people are just so blinded. It, it, it's almost as if when you guys talk about basketball and someone says, you know, this player sucks, but then Mike is like, no, you know, they're from the Knicks. The Knicks are the best. But then Adrian says, no, the Knicks are terrible. If the stats say that the Knicks are awful, then I'm sorry, then they're then they're bad. And we just need to look at facts and understand that. Uh, even, even non-sports fans bang the Knicks, bro. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> but but okay, <laughs> but you know the the, the point still stands, thankfully, uh, in that it's so important for us to be on the same page with these facts because we're we've been operating at two separate realities for so long. It's yeah. becoming increasingly impossible for us to just get anything done, and now getting something done literally is not getting something done rather is costing lives. And this is something that we need to figure out. We need to fix. Yeah, bro. Really solid points, Jordan. Before, before I, I share what I was going to, we should just take a quick look at this map. So these are high prevalence counties for COVID. And so obviously red is a Trump County and blue is a Clinton County. And so these are counties that had a high prevalence at the end of May. If you think, oh, that's a bit dated. Well, if you look Whoa. at this AP chart, um, it talks about the bulk of new cases being in GOP states. There was a bit of a turning point here, Memorial Day weekend. So now at the end of June, you have 73% of new cases being in states that went to Trump in 2016. Democratic um, run states. And wild. Wild. You, know, you have the you see the for COVID deaths as well, it's it's starting to they're on the rise as opposed to the decline. So just some some quick facts for folks there on that. Um I wanna also say, you know, because you know, sh shout out to Shout out to Christians. I'm a Christian. A lot of us on here are, but um, I got some smoke for the Christians because, um, you know, you all just continue to disappoint. You know, these days you just continue to just come up a little short. Um, most recently, we see hundreds of thousands of dollars being raised by Christian organizations for Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, who, if I if I need to remind you, um, showed up illegally with an AR-16 and, and killed peaceful protesters in the wake of the attempted murder of Jacob Blake. Um, we had prominent, um, you know, GOP figures talking about how Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero. We need more Kyle Rittenhouses. Blah 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 blah. All this different garbage that was spewed out there. Um, and, and it's just, it's really mind blowing. And, and this again, and several studies have shown this is the, this is the fundamental foundational base for Donald Trump. Like they, 
they are why in large part he's president, you know, um, they are why um, he has a decent shot at being reelected president and, you know, regardless of everything that we just mentioned, everything we've seen over the past four years, um, studies have now shown that in America, the more you attend church each week, actually the more likely you are to be racist or to subscribe to racist views. So, you know, not the opposite, not that, you know, hey, I'm going to church two, three times a week and I'm getting freed from this foolishness. Uh, no, I'm more likely to subscribe to it uh, the more that I go to church. And of course, we have these folks fighting for churches to be reopened so that they can worship together, I'm sure with mass on um, and, and continue um, spewing whatever nonsense it is they're spewing in their buildings. Um, we are at a, we're, we're in a moral crisis. I think we have been for a while. Um, the religious right would probably say the same thing. And we heard a lot of it during the RNC, but for very different reasons. Um, and if you can um, just blindly support someone like Donald Trump and your church is releasing statements with issues that they have with Black Lives Matter on their official church letterhead in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, you've really missed what the gospel is all about, you know? Um, I'll wait for them to release their statement on, you know, America in general, since since we're talking about things that are rooted in evil. And uh, let's talk about the demon of racism. How about we do that? You know, it's a sin problem, right? So let's talk about that sin. How about that? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of grace for that one. Uh, but, you know, Black, Black Lives Matter is a, is a Marxist demonic organization guys so we gotta you gotta erase the hashtags you know or else we're all gonna go to hell so you know, shout out to the christians man we we thank you for uh for coming through for us once again we, we appreciate you guys um yeah that's all i got i didn't really know where that was gonna land but i ran out of steam <laughs> I think you I think you landed quite well. Hey guys, before we close, does anyone have any last words before we say goodbye um to this to this week's episode? Vote for Biden and uh vote for um Joe Biden. Uh vote for Joe Biden, wear a mask. And, and please stop, please stop uh, drinking the Kool-Aid of party loyalty. Just look at the facts and make your decision. And stop wearing your mask on your chin. Like, that's not helping. You know, obviously, obviously Jordan's, you know. You don't want your beard to get cut. Yeah, like, what, what is y'all out here doing, bro? Like, and stop, stop wearing it like, stop wearing it like this. Uh, if you walk up to me like this, we're not speaking, bro. Your nose. Your nose is the critical piece. Why, why do you think they jam the thing up your nose? That's where COVID originates, bruh. Cover your whole mouth. Cover your whole face if you have to. Do what you got to do, bruh. Wear it. Not the tape mask. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
I'm done. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Don't worry. PMI will be back next week. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for uh, affirming our interaction. Take care of yourself and Wakanda forever. <laughs> I'm all doing it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs>